0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
1: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow
2: down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your
1: people, data and information in one AI powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Your job as a comedian is to analyze
2: and really zero in on the human condition. And the human condition is the full spectrum. It's happy, it's sad, it's funny, it's
1: devastating, it's tragic. That's Mike Birbiglia. He's a comedian, director, writer, and an actor. He joins me for a special episode of Stay Tuned to try and help raise our spirits and to talk about the role that humor can play in times of great stress and sadness, which I think we're all feeling at the moment. I first met Mike almost three years ago at the Just for Laughs Montreal Comedy Festival, where he received the 2017 Stand-Up Comedian of the Year Award. At the time, Mike was on tour performing his latest show, The New One, which documents his turbulent experience becoming a dad. I saw it on Broadway not once, but twice. Mike's comedic material largely derives from his own life. His first one-man show, Sleepwalk With Me, is about a rare sleepwalking disorder he developed in his 20s And his other solo specials, Thank God for Jokes and My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, are based on personal stories he confronts head-on with a lot of humility and honesty. That's why this week, as we face a new reality and manage to have some laughs despite the hardships, he's the perfect guest. I hope you agree. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, stay tuned, listeners. I hope you and your loved ones are staying safe in this very difficult time. There's a lot of uncertainty right now, and on the Cafe Insider podcast, my co-host Ann Milgram and I are doing our best to make sense of the latest coronavirus developments and issues. To help bring some clarity, we're making this week's episode of the Cafe Insider podcast available for free to everyone. Normally, we sample portions of our conversation, but this week, we're making the full episode free. Just head to cafe.com slash preet to sign up to receive the full episode. That's cafe.com slash preet. And if you already received CAFE emails, check your inbox. You should have received a link. Stay healthy and stay safe. This question comes from Twitter user Christopher Cruz, who asks, Do you think our current circumstances during this global pandemic will render the hashtag census 2020 useless in that a vast number of individuals who the census is designed to assist may be too preoccupied to participate? Hashtag AskPreet. Christopher, you raise a very important question, and it's something that has been of concern to a lot of people for a while now. Obviously, the pandemic is messing up a lot of things. It's interfering with schooling, interfering with elections, and the census is no exception. And as you point out, there's a great worry that there are certain communities that have already been historically underrepresented, undercounted. The census historically undercounts minorities, immigrants, and the poor. And at a time of great dislocation and turmoil, where lots and lots of things have been upended, And as you point out, people are preoccupied with their own health and the health of their families that might render undercounting an even more extreme problem than in the past. The particular challenges presented by the pandemic are, you know, somewhat obvious. It's much harder for census takers to go door to door. It's harder to publicize the mere fact of the census. I mean, part of what's important every 10 years is for people to be aware of the fact that the census is going on and to alert people to the importance of it. And that becomes difficult when everything on the news is wall-to-wall coverage of the pandemic There are other smaller pockets of folks who become more difficult to count. College students, for example, are required to be counted in the place where they live most of the time during the year, which is at school, but many, many, many colleges have actually told their students to leave, so they will not be counted in the place that they're supposed to be counted. The good news is that the folks who bring us the census have been taking some measures to try to mitigate the problem. Among other things, they've delayed the final deadline for the census from July 31 to August 14th. There's been an announced delay in the start of door-to-door census taking and counting from mid-May to late May. And probably most important, and something that's never happened before, is the first time, you can actually register yourself and your family for the census online. So it's pretty easy. You just go to my2020census.gov. That's my2020census.gov. For all the reasons that I point out and that Christopher suggests, it's really important that there not be undercounting, especially for a lot of different underrepresented communities. As former President Barack Obama tweeted just this morning, quote, filling out the 2020 census determines what the next decade will look like for your community, your roads, healthcare, schools, representation, and more. So since you're home anyway, and going out of your mind, go to my2020census.gov and fill out the census form. Hi, great. My name is Rose Lockwood, and I live in Missouri. And I wondered if you have any clout to get MSNBC to stop showing every word that President Trump utters about this. Um, you know, he's like grandstanding. And I feel like it's not fair to the American people that we all have to be involved in his rallies now. And so I quit watching the minute he comes on TV. Is there anything people can do to just uh, maybe paraphrase it or captionize it and not uh, record every single word? Bye. Hi, Rose, thanks for your question. Look, I am extremely powerful as a podcaster, as you, I'm sure, appreciate, uh, but I do, I do not have the clout to tell MSNBC whether or not to cover particular things that the president says. <laughs> and, and I don't think you want anyone to have that power, and I don't think the public should necessarily have that power. There are arguments that I understand in favor of broadcasting what the president is saying because he's the president of the United States and it's inherently newsworthy. But the good news is that the rest of us can choose not to watch. I tweeted over the weekend that I have stopped watching the live pressers in real time and that I think it's extended my lifespan. They're difficult to watch for a lot of reasons. I think think you can get the gist of what was said and the important information that you need to conduct your own lives by reading about it afterwards or hearing the summaries from anchors afterwards. I will note a couple of other things. Apparently, the White House presser that Trump conducted on Tuesday, March 31st, there was a different approach taken by some networks versus others. CNN, for example did not run live Trump's opening remarks, and only began covering the press conference when Dr. Burke started speaking, but then of course remained with the coverage up to and including Trump's answering questions from the press. I think in some ways, the media are trying to feel their way through this process and try to figure out ways to bring newsworthy things into your homes, but also figure out ways to make sure that false information is not unfettered coming into your homes. So for example, what I would like to see is more real-time fact-checking. I would like to see Reporters do what some have done fairly well and others have done less well, which is to challenge the president with respect to his changing statements about the crisis, call him out on the false statements he's making, call him out on the irresponsible things that he sometimes suggests, and figure out ways, in captioning or otherwise, to correct misstatements. I think that would go a long way to making these things more palatable, more informative, and more helpful to the public. And with respect to MSNBC, I do think that they cut away from the coverage before the press conference ended yesterday. This question comes from a Twitter user, Dano3D, who says the following, At Preet Bharara, Trump stated that he's ignoring pleas from the governors of Michigan and Washington for emergency assistance because they are not appreciative of him. This sounds like it should be a crime. Is it? What statute would it be? Hashtag ask Preet. Well, here we are back to talking about whether or not the president should be charged with a crime. And I understand the impulse as people sit at home and watch the news and see the president be petulant in this way and not assert his leadership in the way he should to help every single community because he's the president of all of us, whether you voted for him or not, even though he doesn't always act like it. And to be fair for a moment to the president, I don't believe he said that he's ignoring pleas from the governors of Michigan and Washington. I believe he said, in again, his petulant way, that he didn't wanna call the governors of Michigan and Washington because they're not sufficiently appreciative of him. He's also indicated that other members of his staff and his cabinet and his response team are speaking to those governors So I think he's more expressing a dislike and a desire to be, you know, worshipped and genuflected to rather than completely denying any aid relief whatsoever. You know, the reality remains that much of what this president does is not criminal in nature, even though some of it has been proven to be, I believe. He has wide discretion about how he asserts himself in his presidency. And so some of this conduct, including his approach to the governors of Michigan and Washington, may not be criminal, but it certainly is childish. And immature and irresponsible, and perhaps bordering on abuse of power. If you could show that he was discriminating against certain states because of how he felt about their level of appreciation or for political reasons as opposed to other states, dare I say it, I suppose you could build a case that that's an abuse of power in a real, tangible, concrete way. And what's the method of dealing with that? Well, we tried that already. It's called impeachment. And let me remind everyone once again that we do have an election. In just seven months. This email is from Luke from the Bay Area. Recently, I recommended to a friend that in order to get a real understanding of the crisis, he should listen to your last episode with Andy Slavitt. When my friend asked the name of the podcast, I promptly replied, stay home with Preet. Would you consider adopting that as a nom de guerre until the crisis ends? Cheers. You know, Luke, that's a really good idea. And it has a public service benefit too. I'm going to get right on that. Stay home with Preet. Has a nice ring to it. My guest this week is Mike Birbiglia. He's a comedian and a storyteller, known for side-splitting stand-up acts that also double as larger, relatable narratives about some of the difficult decisions and moments from his own life. Mike's most recent solo show, The New One, is really about willingness to change. In this case, going from staunch reluctance about having kids to fully embracing parenthood. It's an honest and heartwarming depiction that doesn't hesitate to dig into questions that most people would rather avoid. It's a tough time right now for the world, so Mike joins me to discuss the role humor can play in catharsis and healing, sharing with us how comedy has helped him work through health complications in his own life. We also talk about Mike's newest initiative, raising money to help support comedy clubs and their wait staff Workshopping jokes online with some of his comedian friends. It's called Tip Your Weight Staff. And we even do a trial run on this episode with Mike testing some of his new jokes on me. That's all coming up. Stay tuned. Mike Brabiglia, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So it's a very interesting time. Some would say not a great time, a sad time. (laughs) And, um, you know, we've had a lot of doctors on and we've had policymakers on. And you realize that you know sometimes you need to figure out how to cope with all of this. And so I've asked my favorite comedian to come on the show. So thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, yeah. Thanks so much. I, I, when you dropped me a line the other day, I thought, usually interviews with comedians are pretty serious about the art of <laughs> and the craft of comedy. So I'm going to do my best to actually sprinkle some jokes in to keep it light, because I know my role here.
1: Well, your role is to be a certain kind of doctor, as they say. What's that old phrase? Laughter is the best medicine. That's right. Do you believe that to be true? Well, I wrote a joke
2: early in my career. I wrote a joke that it turns out a million other comedians had have written and then I didn't do anymore, which is they say laughter is the best medicine. But I think medicine is
1: the best medicine. And, and, <laughs> but, but actually, there's like 10 comedians who wrote that joke. You know, this may hit people funny in the ear. But you know, it's been it's been a sad week. It's been a sad week for a lot of people, or a sad few yeah. weeks. We have more sadness Absolutely. to come. I, I texted you on on Wednesday, and I know you. I should point out to folks I met you at the Montreal Comedy Festival almost three years ago, and we've been That's friendly right. since. And not to bring us down right at the beginning, but my my father in law passed away on Wednesday morning, as I've told folks who listen to the show, and there was just such immense sadness and anxiety about everything. And I don't, it just popped in my head, you know, I'd like I'd like to I'd like to hear from Mike. About a few things. One, when bad things are going on, particularly like this, is it okay to laugh? Are we supposed to laugh? Are we supposed to have fun? Is that all right? Because I think a lot of people are not sure about that, and I want them to know that it is. Even if you've experienced personal loss in your own family, like like we have,
2: I think so. I mean, everybody has their own uh, take on things. I think that I think laughing uh, can be cathartic and healing and connecting with other people. I think so much of laughter and my special that you and I've talked about before is one of the ones is on Netflix is called Thank God for Jokes. And it's about how sometimes uh, a shared joke with someone else can be the most intimate experience of all, because you're, you're essentially, you're having an inside joke about something that you both know is absurd. And I think like, Like what we're living right now through the virus is completely horrific, but it's also absurd because it's unthinkable, it's unfathomable. And so to not laugh about it to
1: some degree is depriving yourself of the absurdity of it. So i got to say, preparing for this interview was a little bit more pleasant than preparing for some interviews. No offense to other guests, but often, <laughs> sure, sure. often I've got history books to read and law review articles and other kinds of things. I just basically watched multiple hours of comedy over the weekend. So, oh, so thank nice. you for that. Um, I watched what you just mentioned. Thank God for jokes, which yep. I recommend to people, even if they're not going to be interviewing you in the near future. <laughs> um, and so you get a little bit of perspective on things. Um, here's, here's something that you tweeted two weeks ago and want to see if you feel the same way. You said there are clearly two types of people in this world. This feels like a dystopian novel versus this feels like a dystopian movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. My my oldest daughter is a a big fan of both dystopian novels and movies. Um, How are you feeling two weeks later? I mean, look,
2: that joke is about a a few different things. One of them is whether you read or whether you watch movies (laughs) more. And uh, I watch more movies. I'm a movies guy. Uh,
1: Yeah, I'm not as much of a reader either, although some people have become readers, I guess, in this time.
2: Yeah, for me, it's very children of men. I'll tell you a strange, strange thing about this for me on an artistic level is that for the last two years, everyone, I I directed a movie called Sleepwalk With Me and a movie called Don't Think Twice. And, And people have asked me for a long time what I'm writing my next movie about and i haven't wanted to tell them and the reason i haven't wanted to tell them and i'll tell you now breaking news is that it's a comedy that takes place in a global pandemic and i swear to god
1: oh come that, on that's i it's the secret that movie. is i are you are you are you being deadly serious right now i am completely serious you're a comedian so how uh, do i know how do i how do no, i how no, do no. you how do you know when a comedian <laughs> Is being serious, frankly. No, I know. That, that's a fair point. But I no, th- this is,
2: uh, you know, I could show you the timestamps in my notebooks. It's, I've been working on this for a couple of years and I've and, uh, had friends, you know, the few friends who I've shared it with have called me and said, you're starting to freak me out right now. Like, what else are you writing movies about?
1: Are you like the comedian Nostradamus?
2: I think it's possible. I might be,
1: <laughs>
2: but but it was on my mind. I'll tell you. Wh- I'll tell you why it was on my mind for a couple of years.
1: Because maybe you listened to the outgoing Obama administration that was warning <laughs> Trump about the pandemic. Oh right. yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe maybe you need to go work at the NSC. The truth
2: is, the last movie I directed, which is called "Don't Think Twice," the editor Jeffrey Richmond had directed his recent project was a documentary about. I think it was about food and. He came away from seeing all the footage thinking that bird flu is a, a high a high likelihood. And he so we'd eat lunch every day when we're editing the movie and he would never order chicken. And I would say, How come? And he goes, I, I edited this movie and it has all this bird flu stuff in it. And I just I'm I'm scared of it. And it and it was so real. And I was and it made me think like it, it made me think of this movie that I came up with, basically.
1: Can I interrupt just to tell you my favorite chicken joke? Please. <laughs> uh, well, I was telling you last night when we were talking about this interview that I can, I can for whatever reason, I, I have a terrible memory for names and lots of other things, but I can remember jokes that, com- that I heard from comedians, you know, from 25, 30 years ago. And back in the old days, I think literally 30 years ago, when Jay Leno was doing stand up, he had a joke about uh, chicken McNuggets and we're not going to get McDonald's as a sponsor anyway. So he said, he, he, said, he said, you can put a chicken McNugget in front of an actual chicken. And the chicken will say, "I see nothing here that offends me."
2: <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, you know, I used to have this joke uh, because I had a tumor when I was nineteen in my bladder, and it's it was a really dramatic life experience. And my first joke that I was ever able to make, because I, I really believe that that in some ways the most most cathartic jokes are from the sa- basically from the saddest, darkest events, and then using the power of the tragedy to. To, to flip it on itself or invert it, right? So It's a true story. I said, I went to the doctor recently and they told me there was something in my bladder and whenever they tell you that, it's never anything good, you know? Like, we found something in your bladder and it's season tickets to the Yankees! <laughs> no! <laughs> So that was the that was the first cancer joke I ever wrote. And then the second cancer joke I ever wrote was when I was 19 I had a malignant tumor in my bladder, but it's funny Stay with me. Uh, because I'm a hypochondriac. And I think the funniest thing that can happen to a hypochondriac is that you get cancer because it confirms every fear you've ever had in your entire life. You're like, see? I told you. Remember last week when I was overtired and I thought I had rickets? I was probably right about that, too. There's going to be a lot of changes around here. It was less funny at the time. I those are my two cancer jokes that were actually somewhat pivotal. They work in my, in my life because they work, and also because they're about something that's inherently sad and, and, and
1: awful, and also honest. Right? It's true. Yeah. I mean, it it'd be, it'd be different. I mean, I guess it's a little harder to make a joke like that if you're not going through the experience yourself.
2: Yeah, I think yeah, I I think that that that's that's very true. I mean that that's one of the things that you have some license when you you've lived the the event.
1: You've said, I've heard you say a bunch of times further to what you're just saying a second ago, that comedy is tragedy plus time. How much time do you need? First of all, to be clear, I'm probably the, the half a millionth person to say that,
2: but but it's definitely like part of the formula of what I of my art form is. How much time... <laughs> there's two questions comedians get a lot. One is how much time with with tragedy plus time. And two can you joke about anything? And uh, those are two questions that come up a lot. And my answer for can you joke about anything is, uh, sure, if it's funny, which is, of course, entirely subjective. And y- you will inevitably uh, pay the consequences of offending people if people don't think it's funny. And that's just the nature of what the art form is.
1: Uh, right, but I've seen I've seen a lot of people, a lot of comedians handle that by making a joke and maybe it's a little, you know, There hadn't been enough time passed and people will groan. And then the the comedian will say, too soon? Too soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of times
2: the too soon, it's really like a cover for the joke isn't so great to begin with. Like, I think you could could make a great joke about the pandemic right now and uh, it'd be fine. It just has to be great. I Yeah, I think there's a there's a correlation between how good is the joke versus how recent was the tragedy, if that makes sense.
1: I've heard you also say this. Jokes have been ruined by
2: people who aren't good at telling jokes. <laughs> a joke should never end with, I'm joking. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, if you have to say that something is a joke, it's not so great of a joke. I mean, there's a cultural conversation about jokes right now. And part of the reason is that comedy has become popular. We're like in a comedy boom in the last like 20 years or so. And so because the art form is popular, people have a lot to say about it. And one of the things that they say is, oh, people are, people are too sensitive, you know? And, and to be honest with you, like the people who say people are too sensitive or, or you're not allowed to say Such and such things—they're usually—they're not the best comics. (laughs) I mean, some—I mean, sometimes they are, uh, but more often than not, they're so-so. And I understand uh, people's—you know—concern. Like I always say, like we all should be allowed to tell jokes, and we should all be allowed to be offended by jokes. I think that those two ideas can can coexist. I'm pretty sure Janice has tried heroin.
1: You know what I mean? like.
2: You think Janice is never like, Kermit, I am like so fucked up. Can I use your leg to tie off my arm? That's right, that's a Muppets heroin joke. And I'm pretty sure if there was a line, I stepped over it right there. That's what you always have to think about when you're writing jokes is sort of where is the line and you don't want to cross
1: it, but you want to go near it. And, and, you know, it's subjective sort of where the line is. When you write a joke by yourself and you're like sitting, I don't know where you sit. I don't know if you, if you're, if you're jogging, when you're thinking about jokes, or you're sitting at a desk or you're on your bed um, and you can, you can fill us in so we can get a visual of Mike Birbiglia. Uh
2: I go for, well, actually, actually I go for walks quite a bit. I, uh, you take a uh, notebook,
1: you take a notebook with you?
2: I usually,
1: I, I, I dictate into my
2: phone. I see, I see, do. And do you crack yourself
1: up when you come up with a good joke?
2: Oh, that's such a good question. Um, every now and then, something does make me laugh alone. LOL in the true sense. <laughs>
1: and when that happens, when you deliver that joke that was so good to you that makes you laugh in real time as you're writing it, which is kind of conceited, I must say, do you find that those jokes play really well when you deliver them in public?
2: yeah i think so i think uh, if you're laughing alone like i'll give you an example of a joke <laughs> if you have, like here's a joke sometimes if you write a joke it's like i can only imagine that this is what playing baseball is like because i'm not good at playing baseball or, or i've never had a a hit in baseball <laughs> so uh but i imagine it's like a crack of the bat where you hit the sweet spot of the bat every now and then you have a joke like that like i had one recently where i wrote it down i go uh my daughter's five, which is an adorable age. And, uh, and the other day I said, mom's going to put you to bed tonight. And she said, she's not your mom. She's my mom. And I said, that's what my therapist keeps telling me because all toddlers have a Boston accent. They're like, I'm tired. And Boston toddlers are like, I'm wicked tired. And, uh, Just a bunch of Ben Affleck sitting around crapping their pants. But once I honestly like the Boston toddlers part of that all but all toddlers have a Boston accent. Literally, the moment that that occurred to me, I thought, if that joke doesn't exist somewhere else, and a lot of times you Google these things as a comedian, you're like, let me Google this, make sure it doesn't exist. Once you realize that doesn't exist, you're like, well, that's gold because that's completely true. Todd- toddlers talk like that. Nobody said that. <laughs> this is great.
1: I want to get into some of the, the craft of how you do this thing. What's it like when you show up at a club to do a set and everyone there, and let's talk about times before you were as well known as you were, as you are now, and you didn't have all those specials and they're paying money to laugh. Like they're showing up. The expectation yeah. level is really high and they don't know who you are, and you show up, and it's a cold room, just thinking, let me see what this guy's got. W- what is that like? And how do you get them on your side? Do you, do you think you've got to have a killer joke right at the beginning? Or do you ease into it? What's your thinking? The time that that
2: comes up it, for me is because I, I perform in theaters and clubs and colleges and, uh, and like corporate events. Corporate events are like the part of my life where I'm performing primarily for people who have no idea who I am. They're having their annual conference, and then they go, and now the comedian, Mike Berbiglia, and I just walk on. I don't love doing corporate events because I don't like selling out, but I don't mind renting out. (laughs) <laughs> uh, just renting, just renting myself for a day, and then going back to my my own career. But uh, but but yeah, you, there is a thing. Seinfeld talks about this in his movie documentary from years ago, which was called Comedian, about how the audience gives you for being well known. And he's obviously far more well known than I am. But for being well known, they give you like a few minutes of courtesy laughter and applause, and then. You're back to start. And I think that's completely true. I mean, I was with John Mullaney, maybe, gosh, and time is so abstract right now. Four or five weeks ago, getting ready for his Siren Live monologue. In other words, yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yesterday. <laughs> I don't even know when heck, I don't know when the heck it was. But he hosted SNL maybe a few weeks ago. And and he and I were kicking around jokes down at the comedy Cellar. And he's extremely well known. He's hosting SNL for the third time. And he walks on the stage and people go, absolutely nuts and then about two and a half minutes in they're like all right what do you got you know they, they really are laughter is a visceral thing it's a pretty honest reaction and you kind of can't fake it what are you going to be at a, at a comedy club and you're going to fake laughing for 90 minutes that sounds exhausting
1: right <laughs> i feel like i've read a whole dossier about you and so i keep quoting you back to yourself please we said look <laughs> y- you can always get an audience to applaud you can ask them. yes to clap. that's
2: right you can ask them to clap,
1: yeah, but you can't. But you can't get them to laugh just by commanding it.
2: No, as a matter of fact, when we were filming, don't think twice. We needed reaction shots because it that movie, and it's on Netflix. If people want to find it, it's um, it's starring Keegan Michael Key and Gillian Jacobs and Chris Gethard and Kate McCucci and Tammy Sager and Ben Stiller has a cameo. It's really a fun one. It's about an improv group where where it's a bunch of best friends and someone in the cast gets cast on a Saturday Night Live type of show and everyone else in the group doesn't. And it's about what happens in life when you start to realize that life isn't fair. Not everyone gets the same thing. And when we were filming it for the improv shows, we needed the audience to laugh. We needed reaction shots. Because a lot of times in TV shows, you see reaction shots of people laughing and you go like, that doesn't feel like real laughter. It feels like actors pretending to laugh. And so what we did is we just put the camera on the audience. And like, I went over to Keegan-Michael Key and I go, can you just do, like, just do an Obama impression for like 10 minutes and just improvise? And he did, and the audience, and we put the cameras just in the audience, not on Keegan. And they went nuts. And those are the shots that are in the movie of the laughter.
1: What was this cultural phenomenon in the 70s and 80s where sitcoms had a laugh track? What what was that about? Was that a dark time? As I understand the laugh
2: track, and I might be wrong about this, but as, as far as I understand it, the laugh track came out, of, came out of a live studio audience, which was to just give a lively feel to early sitcoms. And then over the years... The sound editors figured out which were the best laughs, the fullest laughs of the history of laugh tracks that they they have. Right, and so the the sort of joke that comedians and TV creators will make behind the scenes is that you know when you're watching a sitcom and you're hearing laughter, the people laughing often are dead. <laughs> They're literally. I'm Thanks not even kidding. For that. They're literally not alive anymore because they're using laughter from so many years ago.
1: It's one thing when they're taping a show like Three's Company or whatever that appears that it's being recorded before a studio audience. But if I remember correctly, I think Gilligan's Island had a laugh track, didn't it? It would stand to reason that it would. Yeah. Yeah. And they're literally stranded on a desert island. (laughs) (laughs) you'd, You'd think somebody in the audience could like Get them a boat. <laughs>
2: right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, but the, you know, fortunately in the last few years, there's been, a, I feel like a pivot away from the studio audience, which, which feels canned, but yeah, I've always, I, I shot a sitcom based on my life in 2008 and it was a really pivotal moment in my life because my whole life, I thought I wanted to be a sitcom star. And then I signed it, you know, it was like 10 years into my career I signed a deal with CBS. We filmed a sitcom pilot and Bob Odenkirk played my brother and Francis Conroy played played my mom and Nick Kroll was in it and Rob Corddry and a bunch of great actors and, and comedians. And we filmed it and it really watered down the process of getting studio notes and all these things watered down what my comedy was in the first place. And then it didn't get picked up for network. And I literally think that career wise, it's the best thing that ever happened to me because I went back to New York and I started creating these solo shows, Sleepwalk With Me. And then and then it went to girlfriend, my girlfriend's boyfriend, then Think God For Jokes and then the new one. And so so here I am and uh, I make uh, my own things now and I'm much I'm much happier about it.
1: Can we go back to, to Dark for a moment? Sure. Yeah, and, please. And <laughs> I mean, in some ways, huh. just reminding ourselves of what's going on in the country and in the world, you're like at the perfect intersection of some of these things. Like, y- you are, you're kind of a walking health crisis yourself. Oh, and, and I, you know, people are like, well, that's kind of a rude thing to say. Uh, and it's not a HIPAA violation because you talk about it in very <laughs> personal, very, very personal terms. I mean, you mentioned you had a tumor in your bladder. You also, have had Lyme disease and diabetes, and you have this other disorder, which again, I wouldn't ordinarily be having a guest on the show talking about their life-threatening disorders, but you've done entire shows around it. You have something called REM behavior disorder, which is a terrifying thing. And I wonder, I want you to explain what that is and how you've dealt with it and how you make, you know, how you ring comedy out of that, but also whether or not in the current environment, you can give people some perspective on these things when so many more people are experiencing on a sort of national and global basis the kinds of health scares that you've lived with your whole life
2: that's a, that's actually an interesting example of of tragedy plus time so this is probably 2000 and uh, 2004 i was performing at a college in Walla Walla Washington uh and i was staying at a la, a la, la quinta inn and when i tell the story on on the album i say uh, people correct me. They say, uh, no, "No, no, it's La Quinta," and I'm like, "No, I, I, you can't force me to speak Spanish. I didn't press two. and uh, <laughs> and so <laughs> and so I'm at La Quinta in and uh, and 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 I have this dream that there was a guided missile headed towards my room. But by the way, this is an entirely true story, and I and, and I say that because whenever I tell this story, it's that thing where people go, "Was that true?" And I say, "Yeah." And then they'll repeat it. They'll go, was it? You know, and I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Like, I guess I could say it louder. Like, yeah. And they'd be like, it's probably true. He said
1: it louder. Is it always in that accent? Was it?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The people I'm talking to are always dumber <laughs> than than, than, I, than I am, of course.
1: Um, <laughs> right. But but,
2: uh, but was, so I so I had a dream. There's a guided missile headed towards my room. And mind you, this is after years and years of having minor sleepwalking incidents, like little things. Like I would have a dream. I was in the Olympics. And I would jump up on the, uh, you know, on my bed. Or I would dream there was a hovering insect-like jackal in, in our bedroom. And I would I would jump up on like the chest in our living room. And but this was very serious because I had a dream there was a guided missile headed towards my room. And I decide in my dream, and as it turns out, my life to jump out my window uh, so as to detonate outside the window for the sake of the platoon. <laughs> and uh, in my dreams, I'm a hero. And there are two important details. One, I was on the second floor. Two, the window was closed. Uh, <laughs> so I, I I jumped through the window uh, like the Hulk. And I say that because that's how I described it at the emergency room. I was like, you know, the Hulk, you know how he just sort of jumps out of windows and walls? That's that's like me. And so I jumped through the window. The most common question people ask me about this incident is, when did you wake up? And, I'll, and, and what it is, is I jumped through the window, I landed, I got up, and I kept running. And as I'm running, I'm slowly realizing I'm on the front lawn of La Quinta Inn in, in Waya Washington, in my underwear, bleeding. But in that moment, I, and I swear to God this is true, I was relieved that I hadn't been hit by the missile. <laughs> Look, I, I thought that lining. would have been a disaster. Yeah, uh, that would have been a disaster. At least I'm still in the game. So I drove myself to the hospital. I got 33 stitches in my legs. And uh, and I was diagnosed with this very rare thing. And a lot of times people think they have what I have. And what I'll say is most likely you don't because it's a, such a rare percentage. Um, you may have sleepwalking. You may have sleep apnea. There's a million things that are much more common. I have this thing called REM sleep behavior disorder where people essentially act out their dreams in, in sometimes uh, violent and, and terrifying ways. And, uh, and actually, on a legal perspective, this has been used as a defense in court, before uh, in like, mur- I think in murder- by you? Some, some murder trials. <laughs> no, not by me. Oh, okay. I, uh, I, I suppose I could use it as a defense. If someone did, thought, thought my show wasn't funny, I could say, well, I, I wasn't even awake.
1: <laughs> I've dreamt I was in a movie where I was a bombing comedian.
2: <laughs> exactly. But uh, yeah, so that's, that was when I said tragedy plus time is that was a p- very pivotal moment in my career because I thought, my director, Seth Barish and I, who I've worked with, collaborated with for many, many years, he directed the new one, which you saw on Broadway. But he, he and I both talked about like, we should try to talk about this on stage. I should try to get this on stage. And then that became the basis of Sleepwalk with me, which became a book and a movie and and uh and an album, which is uh on spotify if people want to hear the full album of that stories on, uh, on spotify for free because sleepwalking is a terrifying phenomenon when you think about it because it's your body making a decision that is different from your conscious mind your conscious mind is like we're gonna rest for a few hours your body's like we're going skiing you know
0: <laughs> support for this podcast comes from planned parenthood your body is your own that's why planned parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box, get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com/tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED.
2: But uh, but yeah, it, that's a that's a, actually a great example. And, and to get back to what you're saying of like, I'm a walking. I say I always say I'm a walking pre-existing condition. I have Lyme Lyme disease. I literally went to my doctor once and he said, you have Lyme disease and, and I said, and you never want to hear conjunctions at the doctor. He said, and, (laughs) and diabetes. And I said, one at a time, everybody's going to get a chance. So yeah. And so I have Lyme disease, diabetes, cancer, obviously I had a bladder tumor, uh, sleepwalking, and, uh, and so, yeah, I have a lot of stuff that I can work. I can work but you have,
1: you have not, you do not have the coronavirus.
2: <laughs> not yet, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I, said, I wake up every day. I feel like one of the strange things about this virus is that the moment, and this has never been true in my life, the moment you wake up, you think, am I sick? No. Oh, today's going to be okay. And, and it's, it's, it's a very strange
1: sensation. Can I ask you a personal question then? So, Oh, please, yeah. Given all your, your health issues and scares, when a global pandemic arrives in the country, does that freak you out more? Or do you feel a little bit, I've been through a lot, you know, I, we can get through this too. Like, how, what's your attitude about this? Does it cause you anxiety like it causes everybody else? How do you process it?
2: I think the most anxiety I feel is uh, is just about my wife and my daughter. My daughter's five, and when you have a family, you start to—I uh, don't know—it's just you, you get anxious like on a wider scale somehow. Like it's amplified. Like I gotta take care of everybody and make sure everyone's okay. And 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 yeah, the anxiety is is quite quite extreme. I would say I. I I don't know. I don't, I don't have that. I don't have a very humorous answer for this, but maybe in three months, that's, that's, yeah.
1: You need a little bit of time. What's, what's, what's it like? I assume you're on some version of lockdown with your wife and child.
2: We are. We, uh, how's that going? It's good. I mean, we, um, we were able to get out of the city and borrow a friend's house that has a yard, uh, and the yard, for a child is a crucial thing and makes you realize how much children are just animals, basically. <laughs> it's just, you just need to, you just need to put them in the yard and uh, and, and it made me realize how much I miss um, not having a yard in Brooklyn, which is where I, I live,
1: usually. So a lot of people are suffering. In the economy um, and being laid off and the restaurant workers and others. And there's a group of people who obviously you care about that maybe it doesn't occur to folks who are also out of work. Who would those be?
2: Well, I'm raising money right now. Uh, I created a URL called tipyourwaitstaff.com. And this is for comedy club staff that is out of work right now. The reason this came up is that when the pandemic shut people indoors, I was driving to buffalo new york to perform at helium comedy club and about halfway there i got to ithaca and i was listening to scientists on the radio and i just go we're not gonna have a show this is insane and so i drove home i drove four there four hours there four hours back and so i wanted i called the the club managers in buffalo and then bloomington indiana which is where i was i was supposed to be the next week i said i can't do these shows but i'd like to write a check for the wait staff because they all work on tips and I I for many years worked on tips. I was a waiter. I was a door person at the Washington, D.C. improv. And so I thought, well, this wait staff, and, and this is true of cafes, of restaurants, the whole service industry. So much of what they they're doing is based on tips. And if there's no people there, there are no tips. It doesn't matter what kind of salary you're on. And so I thought, why don't I live stream on Instagram with different comedians and we'll just work on new material. So I've had John Mulaney and Sarah Silverman and Maria Bamford, Melissa Villasenor and and Gary Gullman, all these, all my favorite comics. And and then we raise money at this point, we've raised somewhere between maybe 50 and a hundred thousand dollars for all different comedy clubs across the country, including the DC Improv where, where I started. And, uh, It's our small part. I mean, we're basically attempting right now to to pair up with a a media partner so we can raise more money because it's very hard, obviously, to ask people for money in a time where people don't have money. Uh, And so I always encourage people, don't worry about the money side of it or throw five bucks or three bucks, no big deal or none at all. And so that's
1: what that's what I've been working on. Are you worried that some of these comedy clubs like other institutions are going to shut down for good? I, I am. Yeah,
2: I think one of the things that the pandemic has really highlighted, and this is certainly not humorous at all, is the degree to which Americans are often paycheck to paycheck. And obviously, how the healthcare system has so many flaws in it. And I think if there is a silver lining, it's that we can examine that in this massive failure and breakdown that we're experiencing right now, and just improve moving forward. I thought it was... Uh, Our our, my my governor, Cuomo, I thought was very inspiring when he was uh, speaking yesterday about, uh, about about Excelsior.
0: Excelsior says it all ever upwards, ever upwards, aspirational. We can be better. We will be better. We're going to aim higher. We're going to improve ourselves. Excelsior state motto. It's on the seal behind me.
2: By the way, I don't get too into uh, topical humor, but I will say that I, I tweeted a thing last night that I think is sort of fun, which is, um, in quotes, I wrote, the president will now be fielding compliments.
1: <laughs> I, I thought you were going to mention, because you, you touched on silver linings, Yeah, you tweeted a couple of weeks ago, look at the silver lining, but don't touch the silver lining, it's been infected.
2: <laughs> yeah 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 it's very true you, you're very laughing true. at
1: your own joke again
2: no you're right your own right, joke
1: right. is being read back to you by the host of a podcast and you're cracking up
2: no i know you the truth is Preet, it's like you, you could have read like <laughs> any any number you could have read a stephen wright joke who who we both love uh you could have read a mitch hedberg joke i am maria bamford joke i just love jokes is the truth and some and i love my jokes too
1: so is that true of all comedians so, so when you go watch comedy I would expect that you're a little bit critical, right? Because you're in the same profession. But are you a very generous laugher? Is that true of all of you? I'm a very generous
2: laugher, but I'm also
1: like, you know,
2: there's a degree of authenticity uh, radar that you have, as I think, as a comedian, because you've seen behind the curtain of how things are made. And so I bet you have this uh, as an attorney sometimes, is you see another attorney and you're going well, that guy's kind of full of shit. Like he, I mean, you know what I mean? Do you have that?
1: Yeah, and then I laugh at, at those people. <laughs> that's, that's, so I guess the analogy is perfect. But do you, do you, but, but do you have it? Do you have yeah, it? no, I, you, I do, I yeah. do. But, but I, guess, I guess the other thing I'm asking is, you know, if you're, if you're a very accomplished classical musician, so I'm not, and I, you know, I enjoy classical music, but other members of my family are much more accomplished, I'm not at all. And they can tell when a symphony or a piece is being played exceptionally well to me as long as it doesn't suck I think it's actually quite good and they can draw distinctions between excellent and just good. Is that how you look at comedy?
2: I actually don't. I think that I think comedy is an entirely subjective art form and, and I think I can evaluate like the craft elements of it like for example like I can tell if a comedian is actually comfortable on stage. Like I think like so much of comedy is like doing it over and over again thousands and thousands and thousands of times so that you no longer feel any tension when you're on stage. Like when I walk on stage, I'm more comfortable than when I'm off stage. And and you can, when you're watching a comedian, you, I think you can tell if that's true. Like, like when you're, you know, years ago when Jon Stewart was hosting the Daily Show, one of the things that's so fun about watching Jon Stewart back in
1: the day was, man, the guy is just so damn comfortable, that's interesting. So you don't. I mean, even even the best athletes, I think, will say, you know, they feel a little bit of nervousness, the, the the good kind of nervousness, not paralyzing, but a little nervous before, you know, the race starts or before the kickoff or whatever. You, you don't feel, you know, a little bit of nervousness or, or or tension before you take the stage. The slightest bit. And and if it if it is
2: if it is nervousness, it's about like a new joke or a new piece of material where you don't know what the reaction is going to be.
1: And, I see, uh, Right. Well, that makes yeah. sense. I mean, stuff you know has killed before. You have a good set. Then you just feel confident and comfortable and you just do it.
2: Yeah. I mean, one. I'll tell you one of the strange craft things that's going on right now is that my last show obviously, which is called The New One and it's if people want to watch it, it's on Netflix. I, I'm only plugging it because you don't have to purchase <laughs> it. You don't have to purchase it anywhere. Right. You can just steal someone's password, borrow your sister's password or whatever.
1: Can I suck up and join oh, uh, in your call for people to watch? Because I, I saw that live on Broadway and you were, you were kind enough to meet with me backstage.
2: Oh yeah, I'll send you the photo of it. I'll, we took a photo that I have actually. We did. Of us together.
1: And then my wife and I came back. And we brought our kids. We enjoyed it so much we came we came twice, so people should check it out.
2: And the new one it's all about birth and change and and the new show that I was writing before the the pandemic hit is all about death, of course. <laughs> and then uh, so it, it's all about basically hitting middle age and realizing, you know, these, ter- these phrases that I never understood my whole life. Like people say, when you're middle-aged, you're over the hill. And I never understood that phrase until I got on the hill. And I looked around and I'm like, oh, there's natural causes. And, you know, they're not close, but they're coming. And uh, and that's what the, the whole show is really about middle-age and looking at, at death and analyzing death. And then now with the pandemic, it's like, I'm taking my show, which is tentatively called the YMCA Pool, because now I, in middle age, I swim at the at the YMCA pool. Um, the, which is, I by the way, the backstory on that is I I went to the YMCA a lot as a child for years and years and years, and I always vowed to myself I would never return uh, until one day I went to the doctor and he said, "Have you tried swimming?" You know, because it was my cardiologist and he said my breathing wasn't great. <laughs> right. And I said, no. And he goes, do you live near a YMCA pool? I said, yeah. And I always, I, for years, I never wanted to go back to the YMCA pool because I, when I was five years old, I went to the YMCA my mom brought me into the women's locker room and I had never seen a vagina. And then I saw 100 <laughs> vaginas. And when I was six, she sent me into the men's locker room. And the only thing more shocking then 100 vaginas is 100 penises (laughs) at eye level. And uh, and so I just vowed, I'm like never going to go back to the YMCA pool. But here I am, 41 years old, I'm walking to the YMCA and I think to myself, from the YMCA we are born and into the YMCA we shall return.
1: Do you spend all your day, every day, no matter what you're doing, hanging out with your family, going out to eat, grabbing a drink? It is so much of it, yeah. Yeah. You're writing jokes that whole time. So it's not like um like some people where you decide you're going to go into a room for three hours and write jokes. You're just always doing that. Or you do both.
2: Here's what I do. And this is what the new one, the show that you saw uh, live, came from a lot of journal entries. And, and, and one of the things that you and I were talking about casually yesterday is like, how can comedy apply to your everyday life right now, which is obviously we're all going through a lot of challenges. And the thing that I think that can carry over is I write in my journal a lot and I find um, you know a vast majority of what I write in my journal is junk it, it never ends up anywhere it never ends up on stage never ends up in my book whatever but it is therapeutic every few nights I take the notebook by my bed and I write down the things I'm angry about the things I'm sad about the things I'm anxious about and by the end of writing even just a page two pages I feel better and I f- and I look at the pages and I by the by the time I've written it out I've contextualized it in a way where I think you know I'm being a little silly about this and maybe I should see this from this other person's perspective who's in my story right now and I, I find it to be an extraordinary extraordinarily effective inexpensive
1: therapy do you feel pressured to be funny in, in real life like everywhere you go like when you go to the doctor yeah. Et etc you do, you do. I say this, in, in thank God for jokes,
2: but I, I have this incident where I go <laughs> to my doctor, and he, he asks me what I do for a, a job, and I say, I'm a comedian, and he goes, you're a comedian? And I said, you're a doctor? <laughs> uh, but I didn't say it, I just thought it. What I wanted to say was, I'm going to take this conversation we're having and then repeat that to strangers. <laughs> And then that's the joke <laughs> you're the joke later <laughs> and, and 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 that's really that's how i view the jokes it's just uh, it's just always things that in one context are not funny, and then if you recontextualize them are funny right I actually have it i'm looking at i'm looking at my um so uh, you you can't see this because uh, we're on on the radio, but i'm uh but I, I have a bunch of cards out on my desk here and they all have different jokes on them. And this one- Have they been told well, before? Mm, some of them have been, but they're probably not going to end up on us most of them won't end up on a special or anything. So I feel like, especially in the times we're in, I feel comfortable saying this one because this one reminds me of the situation we're in, which is I say marriage, uh, and you've been married a long time, right, Preet? Uh, 20 years. 20 years, yeah. I've been married 11 years. I say marriage- uh, is a little bit like prison, uh, but it's it's more like one of those Scandinavian prisons where it's on an island and you can learn a skill and it seems like you can leave but you can't. And uh, that's 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 the, that's the whole that's the whole joke. That's see that's why it's not going to make it in the show.
1: That's okay. No, that's not. It was not bad. That was not bad. Yeah, yeah. How much of a difference does it make to try to be funny either alone or talking to one person as opposed to having a full room?
2: Well, what's funny is, is the, like the tip your weight staff initiative is like is actually very similar to what comedians processes are, which is to say that the first thing I'll do is I'll write a joke. The second thing I'll do is I will circle it or put a check mark next to it uh, in my notebook, and, which basically means try it out with a comedian friend who I trust not to judge me. In this case, Preet, it has to be you. And uh, and all you and all your listeners, for that matter, I will uh,
1: suspend judgment.
2: Everyone needs to suspend judgment. Do you want us to add a laugh uh, a laugh track to this? No, my God, if you did that, I would be mortified. I think it's been formally. I think Cuomo said this the other day. Joke judgment has been suspended officially in the state of New York. So so uh, excelsior excelsior
1: excelsior right yes. So if I'm
2: so if I'm telling
1: you some jokes right now, well, try another one. Try another one. All right, this. I mean, uh, this is essentially the exercise you do on. Tip your weight staff. But, this is how
2: I do on tip your weight staff.
1: Yeah. Right. And are, are you, I mean, I've seen a couple of them. I haven't seen too many. And when somebody tells you a joke, you don't like it. Do you say, you know, you got to lose? Are you mean about it? Or how, how well, do you the way that feedback? Like,
2: a lot of it's feedback. A lot of it is, you know, legal arguments have to be like this to some extent, right? Like, do you bounce legal arguments off of other lawyers you trust yes. and say like- All the time. And be, you're, but you're basically asking them to poke holes in it, right?
1: Yes, 100%. And it's a question of, not to make the analogy too much, but you can have a sound legal argument but it matters a lot how you convey it and what the tone is and the language that you use. Like you could have, a I mean, I assume that you'll have a great idea for a funny joke, but if you do it one way, it'll not land well. You do it a slightly different way. You tweak it a little bit and it can kill, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like
2: the reason I bring up the legal thing is like in some ways, like the last show that I did, the new one, which which by the way, is coming, I mean, assuming we don't get hit by an asteroid, the expansion of the show is coming out as a book, May 5th, which is... And and it's actually a mix of my own comedic stories combined with my wife's poetry. And so it's sort of like this nice, like he said, she said, like mother and father. The subtitle is the new one, painfully true stories from a reluctant dad. But in some ways, the structure of that is the first half of the show is in an elaborate, almost, almost, dare I say legal argument for all the reasons why no one should ever have a child. And I say the seven reasons why no <laughs> one should ever have a child. The second half of the show is about how I had a child and how I was right. And then ultimately how I was wrong. And that's sort of the emotional landing point of the show. But in that way, I actually have always thought of, of the new one particularly as sort of a legal argument. And so what I would ask my comedian friends to do would be to poke holes in it and be like, which part of this are you sort of saying like, I don't quite buy that. And look, maybe I have a low tolerance for children because I've lost a lot of great friends to kids. because it really is like a disease in some ways but it's worse than
1: a disease cuz they want you to have it too <laughs> All right so I want to try I want to try some more So I'll, try, you, I'll
2: try I'll I'll try you a couple of new jokes. I I went to a a kickboxing class the other day which was a huge mistake the instructor explained to me. Uh she didn't say <laughs> she she didn't say those you those words exactly but over the course of the hour several times she said if you ever do this again, I said, I think I'm going to do it again. I just purchased a packet from you. Uh,
1: that, that's that whole joke. Uh, and <laughs> I like the first part. The first part was surprising. She said, so I like that.
2: Yeah, I think I think the first the first part is better because it sneaks up on you.
1: Which is the whole essence of you were saying. You were once saying to me, "There's something that we should note here, like the the idea of analyzing comedy and breaking it down and all of that." Some people would suggest ruins it, right? But I know. But since you're in the since you're in the business dissecting a frog kills a frog. (laughs) Kills a frog. But but not digesting any particular joke, but just generally, like jokes are all about surprise, right? That's
2: absolutely true. I mean, so much of a joke is it's a setup, which is something we all agree is true, and then a punchline, which is a right turn that we don't see coming. And that's one of the reasons why during the current presidential administration, jokes have been more challenging to write because we Americans don't all agree on the same truth right now. And if, if there is if there are no setups, there can be no punchlines, uh, which is why I most of the stuff that I do is just personal and it's about myself. And so, <laughs> so there's no there's nothing to dispute about it. Um,
1: <laughs> right. It happened. You jumped out of a second floor window at Vaquinta. Exactly. All right. Try another one. Uh,
2: so like this is an argument that my daughter makes. She doesn't want to go to bed at night. She'll say, but I'm not tired or, but I'm not tired. And, uh, and that's an argument (laughs) that I actually still make myself as an adult, uh, to this day, except it's an argument with myself and every, (laughs) and every night I, I win the argument and every morning I lose.
1: You know, that reminds me that there was a whole, have you ever seen this? Jerry Seinfeld long ago, I think before the show had this whole character that he invented, which he described himself as He's like when you're going out and it's late, you got an early meeting where you're having drinks and you think you want to go home, but you're having too good a time. You start arguing with yourself. You're like, should I, should I turn in? They're like, no, 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 no. I'm night guy. Night guy can, <laughs> night guy can stay out. That guy <laughs> yeah, in the morning, sure. the guy going to the meeting, that's a totally different guy. Yeah, That's yeah, morning yeah. guy. I'm night I'm night guy. That's
2: so funny cuz I used to have a joke. I used to I I'd never heard that bit but I always heard I I uh, I had a joke years ago where I called the equivalent of that version uh, Sleepy Carl, which is right. Sleepy Carl is the is the person in the morning who tries to convince you to stay in bed. So the next morning when I sh- when I woke up for class, Sleepy Carl just wasn't having it. He was like why would you go talk about computers and you could stay here and go skiing and your skis will be fringed toast sticks. I was like, that is the best thing I've ever heard in my entire life.
1: And, and yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a, yeah, that's a similar thing, I guess. Yeah, there are people who like to stay up late. There are people who are morning people. I, I don't think of it in either of those ways with respect to myself. I believe in the law of inertia, which people think is about being you know motionless. It's actually just persisting in whatever state you're in. So when I'm awake, I want to stay awake. When I'm that's asleep, I want to stay asleep. That's what it that is. is in my case.
2: That's so, is. that's so astute. So, okay, here's one that I wrote recently that is, uh, <clears throat> I took an Uber a few months ago and my driver hit a lady. But it's funny because she lived. She was she was actually walking and we were in a car. She was crossing the street and, we, and, and the driver hit her accidentally. And the first thing I thought was one star. <laughs> I do not condone I do not condone that level of driving. And then I start thinking about how the walker and the driver both had the right of way. And I was thinking about how that city planner who created that intersection at one point was like, "All right, so I'm going to do the walking man, and that means you can walk. And then the hand means don't walk. And then blinking man means nobody knows. And the older I get, the more that I think that that life is just blinking man. <laughs> that's good. Blinky, blinking man, this is the final thing I wrote down. Blinking man is your life flashing before
1: your eyes, literally. And that's the end, that's the end of the joke. Right, right. Do you how do you think about offending people when you tell your jokes? Is there a line that you observe? The goal of the comedian, uh, I think in a lot of ways, is to find the line
2: and then inch back from it, right? And so in order to do that, you actually do have to cross the line. It's like uh like a like a chef like putting in too much of one spice and then going, "You know what? Next time, I'm going to put a little less of that spice in." And and I think Whenever I'm working out new shows, I always call the shows "working it out," and that way people know this is not done. And also, sort of swim at your own risk. You know, like this is this is not for the for uh, for anyone who you know is likely to be offended by anything. I've actually there was a couple jokes in the new one, and I won't say what they are because I don't want to offend people. That people wrote me thoughtful emails about how they were offended by that joke. And the reasons why, and I emailed them back why, what the intention of the joke was, and they wrote back a response. And then I took it out of the show. It it wasn't out of some kind of like business practice or something like that. It was literally like, oh, I
1: never thought of it that way. Let me ask you this. The, The jokes you took out on a scale of one to 10, were they among your best jokes? Or were they just sort of sixes and and sevens? I'd say and they if, were. Safe. And if it had been your best joke, would you have hesitated more?
2: That's a great question. I I would say there were about sixes or sevens and or eights. And if they were the best jokes, that's where it gets murky. I think that I <laughs> I, I, I think it's <laughs> like a
1: it's like a Star Trek episode about the philosophy of jokes. Like, well, then then we have to become utilitarians because the greatest laughs for the greatest number, right, Spock.
2: Here's, a, here's another joke I just found that actually, I, I mean, think this this one has a chance long term of making it in. You know, sometimes people die, but then they come back to life. And uh, often they see a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that's sort of a hacky hallucination. I feel like if I had that happen, I would just lie. You know, like if I died and I came back and I saw the light at the end of the tunnel and people said, what happened? I'd be like, well... There was a polar bear, but instead of <laughs> arms, he had talons. And inside the talons, he had one jelly bean. And then he said, anybody want some jelly beans? And that's when I came back to life. And everyone would say, Mike had such a creative death. <laughs> that that one's not there yet, but it's gonna. I feel like that one's going to get there.
1: That'll be a harder one to tell people, you know, it's true. It really happened. Like the jumping out of La Quinta. That's true. Yeah. Are there other things you would recommend people watch, you know, when they're stuck at home and and fretting about this virus?
2: Well, the comedian, some comedians I really love are like Maria Bamford, who I had on the Tip Your Weight Staff initiative the other day. John Mulaney, again, who I had on the Tip Your Weight Staff. Uh, Roy Wood Jr., who actually helped conceive of the idea with me. He's a daily show correspondent. He has a special called Father Figure that I think is really brilliant so those are a few comedians who I love. I think like a really fun movie that my wife and I revisited recently. And I think it still holds up is money pit. It's from oh, yeah, uh, you know. it's the Tom Hanks movie. Uh, and sh- I think Shelly, I'm Shelly Long, Shelly Long, Yeah. Uh, Cheers. Tom Hanks and Shelly Long are very funny together. And my wife and I renovated an apartment recently and it, literally might as well have just been the movie Money Pit
1: do you have a favorite sitcom
2: of all time favorite sitcom mine's the Larry Sanders show on HBO
1: oh which I think
2: is as funny as anything ever made
1: Um, Judd Apatow who's been on the podcast did that great documentary
2: brilliant and I highly recommend that too the Gary Shandling documentary uh, which is uh,
1: it's actually quite touching it's brilliant it's brilliant
2: yeah and Judd is Judd is a brilliant brilliant person
1: that's a great one my favorite because it's the one i sort of grew up with although i think i was watching it in reruns because i was too young is taxi yes i don't know if that's in syndication anywhere oh my gosh
2: i it must it must exist
1: somewhere yeah i mean i think you can probably get it on the internet there are things that happen in in taxi that you just don't see in any kind of comedy anymore like they they take a long time with a joke there's a scene where the funniest scenes of all time in my mind, where Jim Ignatowski, remember Jim? Sure, uh, yeah. Who was, was, you know, a a pothead and didn't really have his wits about himself. And he's taking the driving test, the written test, and he doesn't know how to answer a question. And he whispers to one of the other guys who who drove a taxi, is there, uh, you know, at the counter waiting for Jim Ignatowski to finish the exam. And Jim looks up and says to the guy...
2: I say, you like me. Slow down. Okay. What?
0: What? <laughs> <does> okay. <they laughs> like me. Slow down.
2: Okay.
1: What? They literally carry that on. For like two and a half minutes of, oh my of like of like a continued, and it got slower and slower and slower. And I think I think we need more of that now, Mike Brabiglia.
2: Yes, slow down. And I'll, actually, you know what? I'll say one other thing that I highly recommend: the series extras, which I believe the Ricky Gervais Stephen Merchant series that was on HBO. If if you haven't watched, you can watch the whole series, and that's great. But if you if you don't want have the time to watch the whole series. The final, I believe it's the, the finale, is like a two hour episode and it really plays like a movie. And it's very funny and it's very deeply sad and, and, and it makes me cry. My favorite comedy is uh, stuff that makes you laugh and cry because I believe that the best case scenario with a piece of entertainment is that you experience the spectrum of human emotion. And and it's sort of like working the muscles of all the different emotions.
1: I think if you can get people to laugh at the beginning of a talk and then take them on a on a journey to, to something very serious at the end, the impact of the ending is much more profound. Yeah, I think so too. If you've begun in a funny place. Are, are comedians generally sad people? I think, you know, it's funny. Like Seinfeld has a funny
2: answer to this in interviews, which is, he says, you know, people say comedians are sad, but like everybody's sad. <laughs> he goes yeah. he goes, they're sad <laughs> there's sad dentists, there's sad pediatricians, there's sad lawyers, you know, like like But it's not can't. so
1: jarring because comedians are supposed to be happy. I mean dentists That's are right. not known to be happy.
2: exactly. I mean look, it's like whenever your job, your job is as a comedian is to analyze and really zero in on the human condition. And the human condition is the full spectrum. It's happy, it's sad, it's funny, it's devastating. it's tragic. And so if your job is to analyze that, sure. sometimes you'll get sad, of course, but that's that's the cost to do in business.
1: What's your advice to, to regular people about how to be funny? about how to be funny?
2: I think I think that the thing that my mom taught me, so there's two things my parents taught me. The things my my dad, the thing my dad taught me was to be analytical. My dad's a neurologist. He's a he's a, he's a doctor, and he's he's a retired doctor. He's almost 80 years old now, but he taught me to be, you know, analytical. And so that's why a, a lot of my comedy, like like I was saying earlier, has sort of a in some ways a a laid out argument to it. And then what my mom taught me was you should always be willing to be the joke. You know, you should always have, allow yourself to, to be at the expense of the joke. So like I, one of my quickest, easiest jokes I ever told is, whenever I tell people I'm dieting, they're always like, what are you talking about? You don't need to diet that much. And it's true. I'm not the kind of guy who has a huge weight problem, but I am the kind of guy who could really put the brakes on an orgy. You know and it's like and it's like and it's like i I love jokes like that because because it's like you know, just make a joke about yourself as opposed to saying, "Hey, you're fat or whatever that person's fat. It's like, well, no, make a joke about your own weight, make a joke about your own height, make a joke about your own lack of intelligence in a certain field, let's say
1: yeah, well, self- deprecation is a is a winning quality, right and, yeah, and shows empathy and then you bond with people and then they feel better about themselves.
2: And more, look, I mean, more often than not, we're all in closed quarters right now because we're all whatever. I think, like you're saying, empathy is crucial for the people who you're sharing these sort of big brother housing situations with right now. And then, uh, you know, putting yourself in someone else's shoes and then also having a sense of humor about yourself that maybe you're not the best roommate, you know, (laughs) because probably you're probably not.
1: (laughs) That's probably true. Certainly true on my end. Any final thoughts, Mike Brabiglia?
2: I think my final thoughts uh, are just uh, to, to, you know, with tipyourweightstaff.com, we're raising money for people who work in comedy clubs and maybe aren't the first people you would think of who need money, right? And I think that we should all attempt to do that a little bit. Think about your neighbor, your babysitter, you know, like anyone who's in your vicinity who you feel like maybe doesn't have an income coming in right now. How can you help support? You know, obviously doctors and nurses need
1: support. How can you help those people? It's a great final thought. Mike Berbiglia. let me just say, you know, it is a tough time. Uh, it's a sad time for a lot of people. It's been sad in my house. And separate and apart from thanking you for being a guest on the show this week, you've done a lot to help cheer me up the last few days watching your shows and talking to you so and i think i'm not the only one who needs cheering up at this time so so thanks for doing that it's a real public service thanks mike Uh, thank thank
2: thank you for doing this great
1: to get updates on mike's books and shows and charity work sign up at brabigs.com that's b-i-r-b-i-g-s.com the conversation continues for members of the cafe insider community to hear the stay tuned bonus with mike brabiglia and get the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast and other exclusive content, head to cafe.com slash insider. Right now, you can try a Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. So as many of you know, last Wednesday, my father-in-law at age 91 passed away at his home outside of Chicago. And as I said in the note last week that I read for the Stay Tuned audience the worst part about it all was that my wife wasn't able to be by his side at the end. I've received so many notes of kind condolences from so many of you. I'm I'm very grateful for all of them. They really touched me. There's one note in particular that I wanted to share with all of you, however. It's from a doctor, Hannah Dillon, who works in the ICU at a hospital in Arizona. Here's what she wrote. Your story about your wife not getting to be by his side was moving and got me thinking about the many Americans in that same situation as loved ones are hospitalized in isolation wards. The most difficult thing about this pandemic for me is not the long hours or the time away from my family or the bruises on my face from the N95 mask. The most difficult thing is that my patients are without their loved ones in their struggle. I had patients on ventilators whose families are aching to be with them, to hold their hand, to whisper goodbye if that dreaded time comes. The tragedy of physical distancing Means we cannot enfold one another at a time when we need it most. As your wife was not able to be by her father's side, so many people are yearning to be with their loved ones. I wondered if you could share this small comfort with your listeners who may be in pain from the separation. In our hospital, no one is alone, not when they first arrive, not when they are joyously discharged to recover at home, and not even when they pass from this world. Before every physical exam I do, before I adjust the ventilator, or check the medications, or listen to the lungs, I take a moment to hold my patient's hand and speak to them. Even when they are sedated, even though gowns and masks and gloves separate us, I greet them, I tell them we're fighting for them, I remind them that they are loved. Our nurses learn the names of wives and children and friends and speak to the patient about them while they do their work. Your wife told me the roses are blooming, says one nurse as she repositions a patient. Your son will be so happy to hear that you're awake, says another. We stay. We are always there. We know so many of you, the families of the sick, would give anything to be there yourself. I am so profoundly sorry that you cannot be. But please take some small measure of comfort in knowing that we are doing what we can to be a family to them until we can get them back to you. They are never alone. Thank you, doctor, for your words of comfort. And thanks to all the doctors and medical professionals who are working so hard at great risk to themselves to get us through this pandemic. And for the rest of you, keep writing in. I love hearing what you have to say. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Mike Brabiglia. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tattashore. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Calvin Lord, Sam Ozer-Staten, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara.
0: Stay tuned.